welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this is it. We've got a coach. It's all official. Uh, Kyle Shanahan did not say, F-yo chick, I'm getting out of here. He said, you know what? Uh, You know what will make this terrible, terrible sinking hole in my soul better uh, to fill it with uh, a head coaching gob. Because that's that's effectively what Kyle Shanahan did. Of course, Kyle Shanahan has now officially been announced as the new head coach for the San Francisco 49ers. And everything falls into place. Shanahan, Lynch, no Super Bowl ring. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but yeah, I guess uh, that that's it's, it's officially official. Uh, we can wrap this up now. All right, see you guys later. Yeah, I mean, end of po- that's really all we got. Um, I am yeah. not sure what you guys were really expecting, but um that's pretty much it we're done yep it's bedtime um no i mean just it's, kidding uh, there there was always you know just the tiniest little shred of doubt that you're like this is the niners i gotta keep this in the back of my mind that something could go terribly wrong here and 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 he could just decide to back out the last minute because that's what happens with this team sometimes uh so so it is nice to finally uh, you know, let the the ink dry on this thing and make it official, and and now we can move on to other things besides worrying about who we're going to hire as head coach. Uh, and for the optimists in you, I, I think I tweeted out an image earlier. A listener of the podcast, Marco Pedroso, he did some good work and put together some some poster like images of both John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan in the style of the Obama poster. It was something I thought would be neat or fun after uh, we hired John Lynch because basically all we have is hope. Uh, and so it, re- it reminded me of the Obama uh, hope pictures that we saw. And so those are floating around there on the interwebs. Marco, if you're listening, thank you. Really, really good work. Uh, and yeah, check it out on the Twitter feed um, because it's it's really good. I already the background on my phone. So yeah, they're, they're awesome. Yeah, it works out. But let's let's talk about the Super Bowl for a minute, because obviously it was a ridiculous game. I was texting Richard, a uh, friend of the podcast, Richard, uh, during the game. And he was like, this game is kind of boring. This is like in the second quarter. And I was like, yeah, it's a little boring, but, uh, you know, I'm glad that the Falcons are, are you know, kind of whooping some ass and, and calling it a day. And then third quarter happens. And of course, the, the fulcrum of the game are those third down calls that Kyle Shanahan is now putting on himself. So, David, what did you think of Kyle Shanahan's play calling in the game, uh, especially those two third down calls where he eventually I think one was a sack and the other was a, a fumble that turned into two uh Patriot scores I mean obviously they weren't great um you know not gonna sit up here and and necessarily defend every decision that he made um or or anything like that I mean I thought the biggest the biggest problem for me was really more um I think it was you know around like the four minute mark in the fourth quarter and they had an opportunity um even though you know the Patriots had it obviously scored and and kind of narrowed the gap um at that point like they after that crazy Julio I mean the second crazy Julio Jones catch um, on the side, you have to differentiate because, you know, that's what Julio Jones does is make crazy awesome catches. So, um, the, yeah, yeah, the one on the sideline there um, that kind of bailed them out of a bad situation and gave them a new set of downs. And, and I think there was about four minutes left, maybe a little bit under at that point and threw the ball three straight times. Um, and there was a penalty, I think, in there. You had the sack and, and all of it pushed him out of field goal range. And now you went from I mean, you basically could have kneeled three straight times and kicked a field goal and and pushed that back up to a two score game at that point and basically ended it. Uh, and instead you have 
I mean, I'll, it was incredibly unlikely. You know, a lot of things had to go the Patriots way and they had to get a lot of breaks for all that to happen, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I'm sure it, at the very least, you know, some of those, uh, th- that drive in particular, that series, I think he would, um, probably do over again if he, he, he could have that one back. I'm not terribly upset at the idea behind the play calls and the, the, you, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know, that David and I are generally going to fall in the camp of keeping your foot on the gas. You don't want to immediately fall into this shell of conservatism and go, I think they were at the 22 yard line. And then all of a sudden go, well, we're at the 22. We could just kick a field goal here. Uh, let me go ahead and just kneel or run it three times because it is the NFL. You never know. Not, not even a field goal is guaranteed at this point. Um, and so I, I generally agree with the idea that you don't necessarily want to go full roly poly mode and, and turtle up and just basically say, well, going to go ahead and pack it in. But at the same time, I think, you know, under a bit more situational awareness, I think would have been good. But you got to at some point, you got to realize that you're going to dance with the girl who took you there. Right. And and this is what they did all year was be very aggressive and put it on the arm of, of Matt Ryan. So I, I do think that there's unequivocally, I think that the decisions could have been a little better. But I, I see the logic and I see the process and I can't be too mad at it. Sure. I mean, uh, like you mentioned, uh, definitely a proponent of of being aggressive more often than not. I mean, I, I do think even with that in mind, there there is certainly a time and a place, you know, to be a little bit more on the conservative side uh, and, and maybe minimize risk a little bit, especially when once you get down towards the end of the game uh, and, and there's, you know, a very finite amount of time left and you know that possessions are limited and, and you know, you, some of those things start coming to play. But I, I mean, really, the, the the thing for me that was like, uh, just the most hilarious takeaway out of all of this was the, the idea that now all of a sudden, because Kyle Shanahan had, uh, you know, what amounts to a bad half, like not even a full half, like a bad quarter and uh, and in some change or something like that. And suddenly he's no longer like qualified to be the head coach. Uh, it, it's like, dude, no, dude's no. been uh, an offensive coordinator for nine years. He has this entire huge body of work at this point for, uh, you know what he can do offensively and you're going to change that because of uh, half like yeah and I knew that was going to happen like I mentioned it on Twitter during the game because people were like in the middle of the first half they're like boy sure glad we didn't end up with that McDaniels clown huh Whew. glad we avoided that bullet right. uh, and then here and then here you go a half later and he's you know hoisting a Lombardi it just it's it, it's this yeah I just I, I don't I look I we talked about it on Twitter a little earlier today I understand why people do that, but that is incredibly short-sighted. It's the same kind of short-sightedness that says, because we lost in an NFC Championship game or because we lost in a Super Bowl, now this, you know, we just need a better coach. We, you right. know, we just need yeah. a better coach. This is the That's, sort of thinking that leads to, you know, firing Jim Harbaugh. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, and you're like, you know what? We've got uh, the players. We've got the scheme. We just, need, we just need a leader. We need a teacher. You know, that'll really pull us over the edge. That that's the kind of that's the kind of bull crap you get. That's that's some seven or nine bullshit. Is yeah. really what it is. And, and that's the other, I mean, uh, the other thing too that it reminded me of there is is really in general we put we give far too much credit, far too much blame to coaches. Like, and and I said this like during the game, it's a fucking players' game, man. Like that the the, yeah, the, some- the narrative around this whole thing changes. Like if if okay, so say that series that I was referencing there after the Julio Jones catch, he still calls the same exact plays, but 
Matt Ryan completes another pass to Julio on one of those or something like that. Like or his it, offensive the, the line outcome, can actually make a block. Yeah, the outcome changes a little bit in positive. And now everybody's, you know, Kyle, man, he, he really uh, put the, the, the foot down on their throat, you know, really ended it. It was going for the kill shot there. Mastermind. Dude's a savant. And, and it's like you can't have that wild. It's, it's like with Brady, right? So um, th- he was one play away. If if uh, on that Edelman catch, if Alford picks that pass off, that's the difference between what people are saying now is the greatest Super Bowl performance of all time and him playing like shit. Like, yeah, y- you can't you can't swing that wildly based on the outcome of one play like. Oh, but you can because Twitter enables all. Uh, and, and this and this is the, the, the funny part is, is that, you know, good players are going to have bad games. Um, and and even then. You know, the coach isn't always going to be blamed or or really should get most of the credit for everything. I do think that coaching is important. But one of the questions I got that was that I thought was really interesting and funny was I, there's a video of Jim Harbaugh going around of him doing a dance that Usher taught him, apparently. And Jim Harbaugh trying to dance is just in and of itself <laughs> pretty hilarious. So I retweeted it and and someone asked if we would have made the playoffs if we still had Jim Harbaugh as the coach with this roster. And I really like I don't think I don't think that a coach can make you like a a whole lot better than your talent level. I think they can hold you back like Singletary did with the Niners. And then you give that roughly the same roster with a couple of additions to Jim Harbaugh. And he's able to get pretty far into the playoffs because I think a coach can really elevate you. Not to that regard, though, to the point where you're like talent starved. And now all of a sudden you're making the playoff, right? And so I think that just kind of goes to to show that like coaches, yes, good coaches matter and good coaches do differentiate themselves over bad coaches. But if you don't have players that can play, if you don't have a talented roster, not even Bill Belichick is going to take the 2016 San Francisco 49ers and make them a playoff team. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of it goes into like, and it's hard to jump into that alternate universe, right? Because then you start getting into questions like, well, if Harbaugh was here the whole time, you know, would uh, some of the young players that they have developed more, you know, would they, would they be further along in kind of their career arc right now than they are currently because of the coaching that they've had, you know, and, and having to switch, you know, for some of those players switching uh, entire coaching staffs and schemes and stuff like that, um, you know, two, three times there in, in, in that stretch. So you get into a lot of what ifs for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not. Coaching alone isn't going to take the exact same roster from a top two pick to a playoff team. Like it, it's, it just doesn't have that sort of impact. You know, it, a lot of the benefits of coaching comes more in the long term. And, you know, again, if you, the development of players and, uh, you know, making, yeah, you can make some differences in some key situations. Like, right. Like that was one area where Harbaugh was really good is kind of, um, you know, managing the game and generally doing some smart things there. So, uh, yeah, they can make a difference, but it's not going to swing the pendulum that wildly. Especially with that new rule that gives you points for burn timeouts, uh, which <laughs> is not true for those of you listening. Uh, real quick, before we get to the speaking of coaches and talking about some of the staff that's been rumored to follow Shanahan or, or to come to Santa Clara, San Francisco uh, with Kyle Shanahan, random question for you. Mm. Terrell Owens didn't make it into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Agree or disagree? Oh, it's bullshit. The fact Good. that Terrell Davis got in over Terrell Owens is uh, I'm actually travesty. not even I'm not even mad at, at the Terrell Davis thing uh, because I, I get it. I understand it. I understand the logic behind it. I'm I'm a little pissed off that Morton Anderson got in and Terrell Owens didn't get in. 
Like, don't get me wrong. Morton Anderson's a good player, and he's one of the best kickers of all time. But when I'm looking at Terrell Owens and Morton Anderson, I'm like, hmm, considering only like one other kicker is, has been, is in the Hall of Fame, well, pure kicker, that is, not yeah. just a guy who like kicked and played quarterback, right? Um, yeah, I just, because usually the argument is, ah, there's, there's, you know, five really qualified guys and someone's going to get left off, you know, and it's like, okay, I get that. But not this year, it's like you're going to keep Terrell Owens off. And, and the logic is stupid. The logic is, if you've been reading any of Peter King's stuff, he's really transparent about the whole process. And he talked about how really it was, you're not, a, you're not supposed to take a player's off field stuff into account when making your vote, unless you feel that the off field stuff impacted their game or in game play. And so the argument against Terrell Owens is that his antics in the locker room were enough to overcome or to mitigate his ridiculous and bonkers numbers. Um, Peter King doesn't agree with it. Neither do I. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's bullshit. It's complete bullshit. He should be a hall of famer and he is a hall of famer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's garbage. Obviously the production that he had is, is just insane. I mean, there's like what four dudes ever that has, I, I don't like to boil things down. I mean, touchdowns is rarely something that I mention in any context because it's, it's so random, but I mean, over a career like that, like a, a fairly nice, easy way to sum up his career is he's like what fifth or fourth all time in touchdowns. Like, and he's second in um, overall receiving yards to only Jerry Rice. Yeah, I mean, the, the sheer production, even you know, benefiting from an era where passing numbers are up across the board. Like, it, even taking those things into in consideration, like he's one of the most productive receivers of all time. Uh, it, it's it's a no brainer that he should be in. Uh, yeah. I don't mind the Morton Anderson thing as much. I mean, Terrell Davis is really the one for me. Like he was, he was great, but it was, it was such a limited period of time. And I, I don't think he did near enough. You look at his career production. It's not near in line. It, it's, it's like a massive outlier compared to the running backs that are currently in the hall of fame. Like it doesn't fit the profile. Um, to me, to me, the Davis thing is indicative of the flaw in the process, which is, that you get like what 40 or 50 people in in a room which is what the selection committee is and they legit debate they have advocates for players and they present the case and then people ask questions and it becomes kind of this weird senatorial type of thing where they debate and they discuss and they argue and then they do a secret ballot and they vote and the only thing that you discover is whether or not the person made it in or they didn't you don't get the percentage of the votes you don't get any of that stuff after the fact so what ends up happening is the best debaters and the best arguers get the people that they believe should be in the hall in the hall. When I think in reality, it should just be simply on merit. You make it a secret ballot and you widen the group of people that can select. Yeah, I mean, it, but, but I think even with the like, I don't agree with much in the way of the process for the Hall of Fame. Like, I think it's it's mostly garbage and it's just a bunch of old white dudes um, that are considering things that probably don't matter in a lot of cases, but, uh, Brian Burke of ESPN, like formerly advanced NFL stats, like does a lot of really great analytic work, um, for ESPN. Now he built, um, a neural network that basically looked to mimic the selection committee. Like, so he went back, looked at all the hall of famers and looked at, okay, these are the, the criteria that they value. And this is what has gotten previous hall of famers in at the time that they were voted. And even looking through that lens, right through, this is how the committee views things and makes decisions. Terrell Davis, uh, he pointed out would be incredibly unlikely in a huge break from like tradition for him to get in in that kind based on 
the numbers and, and the accolades that he had earned in his career, it would be a massive departure from what they have done previously. And so I, I, I yeah, I, that one's hard for me to swallow, but I mean, ultimately it's a, po- it's a popularity fame, contest. Yeah, it's, it's kind it's, of, it's bullshit, like homecoming court when you were in high school, right? It's yeah. like the popular kids get picked. And if people like you, you're more than likely to get in. And if people didn't like you and then it didn't matter how good you were, you're likely not going to get in. So that sucks because now Terrell Owens is going to go up against uh, the likes of Randy Moss and a couple of other people that are coming up and being eligible. So yeah. this this was more than likely his shot, and, and that's too bad because he was a damn fine wide receiver. So let's talk about some of the Kyle Shanahan staff rumors. Uh, let's go right on down the line. I saw a lot come out on Twitter. Uh, some even started leaking out on Sunday. But the first one is going to be John Embry. Uh, who is potentially a tight end. He's currently tight ends and assistant head coach. He's been a tight end coach in Tampa Bay since 2014. This is likely, if he does come over, going to be uh, a tight ends coach here in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, notable people that he's, uh, that he's coached, Tony Gonzalez, Chris Cooley, and Jordan Cameron. So he's got a couple people in there uh, that, he's, that he's helped develop. But uh, yeah, he's a guy who could come in. I actually thought that's different than some of the people that were rumored to follow only based on offensive connections uh, based on on their experience with Gary Kubiak's staff in Denver because some of them are still looking for jobs. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's rumor number one. Uh, and, yeah, tight ends, I guess, going to tight ends at some point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not going to sit here and pretend to to know a lot about a lot of these assistant coaches. I mean, it's really hard to know, obviously, what they're responsible for and, and how much impact they truly have um, kind of sitting from where we are. I mean, I think running down the list, obviously the ones that we want to get to and spend a little bit of time on are more defensive coordinator through some of the other names. I mean, Jeff Halfley, Jason Tarver were guys that were on the 2016 49ers coaching staff, uh, DBs and, and linebackers respectively there. They appear in line to kind of stay. I'd seen some rumor, too. It, it had, it's kind of gone away, but it I, I heard something early on that Rathman was was also kind of looking to be in that boat. Um, which wouldn't so be surprising. So with Rathman, the question was whether or not he would, what role he would retain because you've got another running backs coach that, that, uh, that Shanahan might like, but if you put him at running backs coach, then what do you do with Tom Rathman? Um, so I think yeah. it's just one of those things where they want to keep him, but they may not know the exact role. The The only thing I will add about John Embry is that usually when a coach achieves or is granted the assistant head coach title or something like that they do it because they want to keep that coach around for whatever reason um like they 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 value that person and and because there used to be a weird rule which now doesn't exist where you couldn't uh you could block a guy unless he was going to get promoted now you can block a guy full stop unless he's going to be interviewing for head coach so even lateral moves um, or promotions if someone's going from a position coach to a coordinator, uh, that team can block it irrespective for no other reason than we don't want them to go. Um, and usually what comes after that is this pay bump and title bump. That's like you're the tight ends coach, but you're also an assistant head coach. And so usually that's just that's indicative of that individual's value to the franchise. So while we don't know a shit ton about John Embry, the fact that he has that assistant head coach title is it means he's probably doing something. Oh, right. so he doesn't have that title currently. He's in line to get that title from the 49ers. Oh. Well, then Shanahan yeah. really does like him. Um, yeah, that's the the rumored position that he's going to have with the uh, with the Niners if if that ends up happening. Um, so yeah, he's he, I'm pretty sure he's just tight ends coach right now in in Tampa Bay. Um, and then yeah, I mean it, it's it's kind of weird to me to 
toss that out, you know, just, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. The, the whole assistant head coach thing is really strange to me. I, I, I you're exactly right. It's like this thing, we're going to throw a title and, and a pay bump in here, stick around outside of that situation. I don't really know what sort of value, especially when it's someone like him who he's, uh, he, he has some college of uh, the minimal college head coaching experience. He was, uh, the head coach in, in Colorado for two years, I believe. Um, and so I guess maybe he sees that experience as valuable. And usually assistant head coach, I think when you're you're hiring him into that role, it's like, OK, I'm a new head coach and I'm going to have, you know, hire somebody with experience that's going that I'm going to kind of lean on as my number two. He seems like a strange choice for that to me. I don't know. Yeah, it looks like he and it looks like it's official because you've got uh, Greg Allman from the Bucks beat and Tampa Bay Times saying that it's it's effectively official. Uh, that oh, he is moving over with that title. Um, Breaking news and, here. We don't do that. Yeah, often, you know, literally on the <laughs> show. Um, apparently, uh, Cameron Brait is the guy he helped uh, break out, which, I mean, I guess you could call it that. Um, but yeah, that that is a little curious that he's coming over as an assistant head coach. Um, but you've got tight ends coach. Uh, you've now got, and then Jeff Halfley, Jason Tarver, we've talked about them, that they, they were their current staff. Let's talk about Mike McDaniel for a bit. So Mike McDaniel is a name that I heard fairly early on as a coach that could or or would want to come over with Kyle Shanahan from Atlanta. Mike McDaniel is currently the wide receivers coach with the Atlanta Falcons, and he is considered a very, 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 very smart guy. I think the guy went to like Yale or Harvard or one of those blue blood Ivy schools. Um, but the rap on him is apparently that he is a bit of an alcoholic and he had been slipping into alcoholism the last couple of years until last year or until this year when he finally reached out to Gus Bradley and asked for help and they basically put him in in an in-treatment facility and he's been sober since the beginning of the year and apparently he's like yeah uh, he was diagnosed with depression and he used alcohol to cope and he had never been diagnosed with anything and so finally when he went into the in-treatment facility he got diagnosed and he and Kyle are very 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 close Uh, and so even though the supposed rumor is that Atlanta is it going to block all assistance from leaving? We know that not to be true with John Embry and Mike McDaniel, someone whose personal relationship with Kyle Shanahan makes him also very, very likely to move. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's kind of on record saying that he basically owes his coaching career to the Shanahans, you know, because he was with them in Washington. So, uh, yeah, he's he's been very close there. It would be very surprising if he doesn't uh, sort of tag along here. But by all accounts, he seems to be, like you mentioned, kind of a very bright guy. And and if he can kind of uh, get his, keep his personal life, in, you know, going on the right path there and, and kind of keep things together and, and, uh, and, and hopefully stay on a positive note there. I mean, yeah, he seems like a, a an asset to have because he had a lot of quotes there from players like on the Falcons and, and Cal, kind of like how he, brings everything together and he kind of fixes the offense when it's broken. Like if something's not working properly, he's the guy that kind of diagnoses it and is able to, to help them kind of patch things up and move along. So uh, yeah, it's, it'll be exciting to have him on there, uh, you know, on the staff. Seems like he's going to be in the same role. I don't, I, I even heard rumors that there may not be an offensive coordinator at all. Like he may just hire, uh, you know, kind of his positional coaches across the board there. And then just that falls on him to, to do, Uh, head coach and offensive coordinator duties there's a really good story or a really good article in usa today by tom pelissero who actually talks about how the brotherhood that gus bradley helped create in atlanta 
uh, actually, you know, potentially save Mike McDaniel's career for sure. Um, and, and it's a really, really interesting. Th- it's a really interesting article because it points at the same kind of thing that Steve Young identified in his KNBR interview. This idea where one of Bill Walsh's great innovations for franchise building was to bring teams together to cross pollinate position groups to really make it feel like a team. And it's something that he thinks, you know, Pete Carroll does very well. And uh, now, of course, Gus Bradley does well in Atlanta. And so the article is a great just it's a good view into hopefully the kind of culture that someone like Shanahan will want to bring to San Francisco. And if they can create that similar support system for McDaniel, then the article, you know, gives me nothing to to nothing other than to believe that he can continue to succeed. One thing I wanted to ask you about, David, you mentioned that. McDaniel, I thought McDaniel might actually come over as offensive coordinator, but if he's coming over as a wide receivers coach and there's no put and there's the potential for there not to be an offensive coordinator, do you think that that's too much to put on a rookie head coach? And do you think there's risk there when the head coach has got to be responsible for managing in-game situations, clock situations, down and distance challenges, all the things that come with game day, overall offensive game planning, defensive game planning, and if he's got control to 53 and he's and he's the de facto offensive coordinator, is that too much for him to handle as a first time head coach? I, I think you can definitely make that argument. I mean, uh, it, it seems, you know, we talked a lot about challenges that first time head coaches face in general. Right. And, and kind of adjustments that they have to be able to make there. And so you're already dealing with that when you're not worried about other coordinator level responsibilities. Right. I, I think the biggest thing. Um, where this would potentially be a problem is more time during the week, right? I, I don't see it as a huge issue on game day. There are quite a few coaches, um, you know, that that handle both play calling and all of the other, uh, you know, game wide stuff that head coaches have to deal with there. So I, I think he seems like a very bright guy, kind of somebody that's going to to be prepared for that. So game day stuff, I'm not overly concerned about. Um, it, it does seem like he would benefit, even though it may be in title only like having somebody there that he trusts that knows the offense and that can help him with game planning tasks during the week when, you know, he can't be necessarily focused solely on the offense anymore when it comes to, uh, you know, his duties throughout the week there. And from a game planning perspective, he's kind of has to have his eye on the entire picture there. So I, I think having somebody that he trusted that he could kind of delegate some of that responsibility to would really help him out. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously it's tough. Everybody's going to be a little bit different, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little concerning for sure. I mean, even Chip Kelly had an offensive coordinator, which was effectively a run game coordinator and Curtis Modkins, um, and, and other players that have uh, other teams that have head coaches that call their plays also have offensive coordinators to help share the load. I, I think that the last time you had a team basically go without a coordinator, I think was the Patriots. Was it not? Because they went through a rash where they lost like Romeo Cronell and they lost Josh McDaniels for a bit. And I think it was when McDaniels left to Denver that they did not have an, uh, an offensive coordinator. And they basically had their quarterbacks coach handle some of the, the play calling duties. And then eventually he grew into the offensive coordinator role. And then Josh McDaniels came back. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like something that the Patriots and Belichick would probably do. I Yeah, yeah I, I can't think of a specific example or like a specific year when that happened. That does sound definitely like vaguely familiar. The Patriots going without one of their coordinators for a stretch. So um, wouldn't be surprising. But yeah, I can't remember many instances of that happening for sure. 
Yeah, I think the and we'll talk about this a little bit near the end of the episode, but a bit of a, a bit of a tease here. The the concern for me really is not that Kyle is not a good coach and not that he can't do it, but that it's a big transition. And I think leaning on people with experience is good. And it seems like there's a lot of things getting put on the plate and a lot of really young people to do it. Not saying it can't work, um, you know, but but startups are seen as startups for a reason. Um, even if those people have been in business for a long time. So we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit later. But let's talk about the, the defensive coordinator because, of course, that's the, the one everyone's been focusing on. This weekend, Jay Glazer reported that Brian Flores, who is the Patriots defensive or he's the Patriots linebackers coach, was rumored to be a candidate for defensive coordinator. The linebackers position in New England is pretty much defensive coordinator in waiting. And Brian Flores has a really, really good resume, at least on paper. He started out as a scout hired by Scott Pioli, moved to special teams, went to safeties, went to, and then ultimately went to linebackers and is a very, very bright mind by all accounts and in line to replace Matt Patricia as a defensive coordinator. So that, that was rumored. But then currently the rumor is that Robert Saleh and Jerome Henderson could be co-DCs. Uh, so David, what do, you know, what do we know about those two guys? Co-defensive coordinator just sounds really strange. Um, sounds like something you do in college. I mean, yeah, it's, like, it's definitely a more common college thing. Uh, I, I can't think of even a single example. Um, you know, I haven't done a ton of research on it by any means, but can't, can't think of too many examples in the NFL where that's been the case. But yeah, I mean, with, with Saleh, it, it, he was actually set to be, so he's been, um, kind of following around Gus Bradley for a while. So he was uh, a quality control coach in Seattle from 2011, 2013, then he followed Bradley to Jacksonville, and he was a linebackers coach there um, from 2014 through last year. And then once that staff was fired, he was obviously looking for work and, and was kind of in line to be, I think, and maybe even hired uh, as the, the Chargers linebacker coach. Um, but now already could be kind of uh, looking at a promotion from that position there and, and joining the Niners. With Henderson, he was with Atlanta this year, so he was there. Um, which also seems like kind of a split here because he was the uh, defensive passing game coordinator for the Falcons this year. So uh, was which is kind of a strange title also that you don't see very often in the NFL. But prior to that, he's been a defensive backs guy. He was with three teams over the last like decade or so with the Jets, uh, Browns and Cowboys in there all as a DB coach. So, yeah, I mean, you have two guys that don't have a ton of experience. I mean, when you look at what Saleh, right, he was just not long ago a quality control coach, which is, you know, the low man on the totem pole, basically. He's the guy that's uh, just collecting data that the other coaches are using in their game plans. He's charting a bunch of shit and uh, not really having a, a significant influence in, you know, like game planning or doing anything like that. He's not coaching a specific position. He's really responsible for, finding tendencies and charting information about the, you know, opposing offenses there. So uh, limited experience with, with really both of these guys. Um, it, it seems weird to pair. I mean, you mentioned it with the youth, right? Like first time GM, who's pretty young, first time head coach, who's pretty young. Now we're looking at first time coordinators on the defensive side of the ball who are also pretty young. Like uh, it, it who seem to have a, their specialty in a given area. Cause it yeah. seems like you've got, you know, someone who's going to coordinate the passing game. And then if I were to guess, Robert Saleh would then coordinate the front since he's got that linebacker specialty. 
Yeah. And then, I mean, the thing that ties them together, right, is that that kind of uh, 4-3 scheme there. I mean, both of them have a little experience in other types of defenses, including 3-4 teams. Um, but most recently, their experiences with that, um, from that kind of Pete Carroll, Seattle coaching tree there, that defense, that that 4-3 under that they run. So, And you know that Gus Bradley was the top option uh, for the 49ers defensive coordinator because they tried to go after him and then he eventually went to San Diego, I believe. Uh, so you know that th- that this may be the type of defense that Cal Shanahan wants to run. So the question then becomes, David, is this a team that is going to or should switch to a 4-3 under scheme? And, and before you answer the question for our, our new listeners, to help us just understand what the 4-3 under scheme is. So, I mean, the, the big thing to keep in mind there is is really to me at least like three, four or four, three differences are, are largely based on personnel at this point. So, I mean, there are a few identifying characteristics, but teams kind of run the same, can run the same fronts from either group, right? It, it really depends on how many linebackers, how many um, defensive linemen you choose to have. But the thing to kind of pay attention to is where four, three teams in general have a, a three technique, right? They have somebody that's lined up on the outside shoulder of the guard and whether it's under or over is going to depend on which side the ball that tackle is lined up on. So under is is designated by that three technique tackle being on the weak side. So away from the tight end generally. Um, and, and then everybody kind of falls into place based on that guy. So that's kind of a, a key thing to point out. Um, you have, you know, some other differences in positions like uh, Pete Carroll likes to call his weak side outside linebacker a Leo, which is kind of this hybrid, you know, defensive end outside linebacker position. But really ends up being very similar to what you get from uh, a 3-4 outside linebacker. Same thing with his strong side backer. So Sam is usually going to be the the term that you hear for the strong side guy. Um, He's going to be generally up on the line of scrimmage and and kind of over the tight end in base situations. Um, So you can get away with doing similar things in 3-4 personnel. Uh, I think the big differences for me really come down to what you're doing with your interior defensive linemen and kind of the differing skill sets that those guys you know need to have one of the things that helps me remember four three under or four three over is in a four three over you are over to the strong side i have no idea why that mnemonic works for me but i think four three over to the strong side your three techniques at the strong side and then by definition then or by default you're under then would have the three technique to the weak side there are a couple of reasons why the scheme works. You've got uh, you've got a little bit fewer double teams for your dynamic players that are going to be on uh, the backside, and and so you basically can isolate them and and let them get after and do what they do. So there's a couple of quirks there, but the the question then is if that's your four three scheme, and and it's not, it's really not that huge of a difference between three four and four three teams right now. Is it still an easy switch then to say, well, we're a 3-4 team, we can do a lot of the same concepts from a 4-3? Or is there going to be more of a roster overhaul needed in order to run this new type of scheme, if indeed that's the scheme that we run? I mean, I'm kind of hoping for a roster overhaul anyway, so I I don't really have a strong preference one way or the other. I mean, uh, I I think it all comes down to having the, the right personnel to fit what you're trying to do, right? Like, fronts again can be you can run the same sort of fronts like the 49ers actually this year and in previous years have run fronts that are very similar to a 4-3 under right it, it doesn't take much to to bump one of your dns down into that three technique shade your nose tackle and all of a sudden you're in an under front right it, it's it's not um a huge huge difference and you can kind of do that with 
um, with within both schemes, right? Um, I, I think the big question for me is really comes down to what do you do with both DeForest Buckner and Eric Armstead? Um, obviously, in sub packages, which is really the the base defense. I mean, that's really what I think uh, you should be most concerned with is is who do you have in your sub packages because that's who's on the field most of the time. And, and in those situations, having Armstead and Buckner as your defensive tackles on the inside, you know, that nothing changes there. You can still do that and everything's great. Um, but in those base situations, ideally, I think you're going to have one of them in the strong side. Like they, I think they both most fit the strong side defensive end role, which is usually uh, there is a, a five technique. So outside shoulder on the tackle. And this is really uh, kind of your, your dominant run defender in this scheme, essentially. So like, the, the Seahawks, um, when in, in the early Carroll years, were really playing uh, Red Bryant there, who was like a 300-pounder, typically a defensive tackle, but they bumped him out to D-end to play this kind of um, run-defending position there on the strong side. And so I think either one of them would slot in at that spot, but then what do you do with the other one? It, it, it is, I think, maybe a little difficult for someone that size to play three technique. I mean, it's it's going to be hard for them. They already kind of... Uh, struggle one of their weakest spots is playing with leverage right like being able to to stay low keep the pad level low and not let those offensive linemen get underneath them and push them backwards and so that's already a problem and that becomes even more important when you get there in the interior so i think that's a little bit concerning but in terms of the the defense as a whole i'm not too worried about it because i mean in all likelihood there's going to be a lot of change there anyway all right so in terms of assistant coaches that's all we've heard so far uh, and so what we wanted to spend some time talking about when it comes to Kyle Shanahan then is just a little bit of differences that you can expect for the 49ers offense now that Kyle Shanahan is the coach. Now we're going to give a more in-depth look into Kyle Shanahan's offensive scheme in the upcoming weeks. We always do a scheme month and have this will be, I think, our fourth scheme month, fifth scheme month. Hell, three, I forget. Three or four. Yeah, I think yeah. I think this will be three, actually. Yeah, yeah we've done two this will, So this yeah. will be our, our third annual scheme month at this point. Uh, and and we're going to dive super deep into the Shanahan offense. So what we're going to bring to you right now is more of a quantitative look at some of the things that Shanahan is going to change. And we'll start with personnel. Personnel groupings, of course, are just the number of people that or the, the positions that you put out on the field in an, on any given play. And what you've got the Harbaugh years, which, if you're familiar, were a very, very versatile grouping kind of offense where you had multiple formations, you had different personnel packages that seemingly changed on every play. In some cases, they had to call like a bajillion timeouts in one half, right? And, and then you had Chip Kelly, which was like, all right, it's basically the number of wide receivers. That's it. Don't even need a fullback. Uh, and eventually, we cut our fullback, um, and mostly because he likes to hit women. And, and, <laughs> and so now the, the, the positional versus, or the, the personnel packages that Kyle Shanahan is going to bring, I think, are going to be a bit more like the Harbaugh years and less so like the Chip Kelly years. Definitely. I think it's going it, to at least trend more that direction. I mean, the Harbaugh Roman years there for, for a while were kind of crazy. I mean, they, they had years um, there where they had four different personnel groupings with at least 20% usage, which is pretty much unheard of. Like usually, you know, most teams around the league have like two maybe that they use over 20% of the time. So uh, yeah, they, they were pretty varied in that department. And Shanahan's been... Uh, very similar. I mean, he's he doesn't quite get to four groupings in, in that range, but is pretty consistently has three around there. So I think 11's still going to be the dominant. I mean, and every team in the NFL, 
11 personnel is is your kind of go-to. One back, one tight end, three wide receivers. That's what everybody lives in at, at this point in the NFL. So um, you're still going to see that on on probably around 50% of snaps. You know, that's kind of where he's hovered around a little bit under that maybe. But you're going to see a lot more 21 personnel. So two backs, one tight end, uh, and 12, one back, two tight ends. So those a little bit more run-heavy personnel groupings is something that he's like to utilize a bit more often. So, uh, and one thing that's been slowly kind of trending upward too is his 13 personnel. So three tight end packages um, was, was up to 8% this year, which is the highest that it's been, uh, you know, at least within the last five years here. So uh, yeah, I think we're going to see more varied looks. I think um, when you start looking at the 49ers personnel, obviously there's going to be, I think a few changes there, um, you know, probably looking to add a fullback at some point in the off season, um, you know, maybe if fewer wide receivers end up on the final roster. So there, there's certainly going to be some changes there. Of course, Atlanta used DeMarco, their fullback this year, to a pretty good effectiveness. They like to run behind him, uh, and they like to put him out in, in coverage, or not in coverage, but uh, out on the route as well. He caught, I think, a pass uh, in the Super Bowl as well, uh, and I think he had one drop. But it is going to be one of those things where it's not going to be a, you know, you have to have a fullback there all the time. But I think the fullback will indeed be a, a more consistent part of the 49ers offense now that Kyle Shanahan uh, is in San Francisco. One thing that I thought was interesting, and this was from uh, the Robert May story in The Ringer about Kyle Shanahan. He talked about how the positional, it's not just the personnel groupings, but it's also formational versatility. Because you can have one back and one tight end out on the field, and you can have two backs and one tight end. But where they line up and where you put them can still be a headache for teams to really account for one of my favorite plays was during I think uh, I think it was in the playoff game against Seattle where in the red zone Kyle Shanahan ran a sale concept with Tevin Coleman running the corner route out of the backfield like that this is a a running back that lined up in the backfield and is running a corner route on in the end zone maybe 15 20 yards down the field Uh, or I think it was about 15 yards down the field Um, and the, in, in the story, he talks about how against Green Bay, it took them 27 plays and almost 21 minutes of game time for Atlanta to repeat a formation. So they probably had similar personnel packages, but a lot of different formations. So I think you're not just going to see a bunch of varied personnel packages, but you're also going to see a lot of very, very different formations to dress up a couple of their base staple concepts. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's a, a really good point to bring up in terms of you know, what people mean when they say they, they kind of adapt the scheme to the personnel, right? It's not that they make these wholesale changes, right? Coaches, for the most part, with unless you're Bill Belichick, right? Like you, they do what they you do. You know what you know, right? You know, you know, certain offenses, you know, certain defenses this is what you grew up in. Um, you know, that's this is what you do. Well, this, these are the things that, you know, and, and Kyle Shanahan's no different, right? He uh, is we're going to get into again in later episodes. I mean, he's running a variation of the same offense that his dad ran that John Gruden ran, right? It's a, it's this kind of semi West coast offense paired with, with the wide zone run, right? That that's really kind of the core of everything, but you can do that out of a variety of different looks, right? Like um, he, he can, you mentioned like the, the running back there being one of the primary routes, uh, you know, on a downfield, like vertical stretch passing concept. It's it's taking those same passing concepts that he's going to use kind of no matter what. Right. Like maybe you. Yeah, you're going to pick and choose ones that your quarterback feels a little bit more comfortable with. But he's got the same, 
you know, kind of uh, a book of passing concepts that he's going to bring with him. And then it's it's being able to run those from different looks and different formations and different personnel groupings where it's the same concepts that he's been doing over and over again, but you're getting, you know, maybe it's a running back in the slot. Maybe it's a tight end in the slot running this route. So you're just kind of giving the same thing to the defense in different ways. Uh, and, and that's, I think, really what it comes down to when you talk about adapting your scheme to the personnel that you have is, is really that's what's at the core of it. One of the other things that we'll get to see is a lack of tempo, I guess, as compared to Chip Kelly. Although, again, Chip Kelly, I don't think, had a, a wicked fast tempo kind of offense in San Francisco. Still ranked near the top in terms of uh, pace and, and situation neutral times. But you've got now Kyle Shanahan as someone who is has been getting a little faster in the way that they call plays, but certainly isn't going to, to rock your face off in terms of speed. We look at tempo in terms of time between snaps for situation neutral pace. Obviously, if you're behind, you're going to go a little faster. So it doesn't make sense to to say, oh, well, how fast do you go when you're behind? Because you, you want to see what it's like when the situation is neutral, meaning that you know, you're know you not too far behind uh, and not too far ahead because then you're also taking a long time to snap the ball because you want to bleed the clock. So when you look at his his positional ranks year after year, looking back at the last five years, He's, you know, generally kind of slow or middle of the pack. And you've got two outliers in 2014 and 2016 where he ranked third and fourth uh, in terms of speed in the league. Uh, and 2016 was the was this year, of course. Uh, and 2014 was his last year uh, and his only year in Cleveland before he GTFO'd because he, you know, didn't want to play Johnny Manziel. So mm -hmm. th this is someone who I think probably prefers more of a medium pace, but can ratchet it up and has sped up over the last two or three years uh, of his coaching career. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that he he seems to be trending a little bit quicker with his tempo, right? Which isn't all that surprising because he has shown a willingness to kind of, um, you know, adapt newer tactics, right? So like we saw him uh, obviously with RG3 kind of go into uh, a more of a heavy pistol, like shotgun type usage to make him feel more comfortable um, he's incorporated, you know, run pass options into his offense. And that's something that they utilize in Atlanta with, with, uh, quite a bit of regularity there. So he's kind of, um, you know, willing to adapt what is mostly a, a very old school foundation, um, in, in his offense with kind of these newer school tactics. So that's something that I really like about what he does offensively. And I, and I hope that this kind of trend towards a little bit of a faster tempo sticks. Um, the one thing that I think would be beneficial is, uh, and I think Chip, not always justifiably, but, uh, you know, maybe a little bit towards his last couple years where the, the tempo wasn't quite as varied as it needs to be. Like one of the things that makes tempo, uh, you know, very effective is that it, it's used as a change of pace. Right. If if you're running that same fast pace all the time, especially at the NFL, where the refs are going to kind of control how fast you can really go, you can't get those same speeds that you get at the college game. Um, you know, defenses are going to to get more comfortable with it and be able to adapt. And then it, it's not going to be that big of a deal for them where it can really be effective is when you use it more like what New England's done. Like New England for a while now has been, uh, you know, ranked among the league leaders in that situation, neutral pace. But they kind of mix it up, right, depending on the game situation a little bit, like they'll go at a more average speed. And then for a drive or two out of nowhere, you know, they'll ratchet it up and go very fast. And that throws a defense off balance. It makes it more difficult for them to communicate. So that's a sort of approach in regards to, to tempo that I'd like to see from Shanahan. 
And Atlanta did that in the Super Bowl this year. If you remember, I think it was their second or third score. When they got into the red zone, they went right to quick tempo and they started putting pressure on there and New England had to call a timeout because they were like, oh man, we've got to catch our breath. I think it was after uh, a long pass. So this is the, that very tempo that we hoped Chip Kelly would bring to San Francisco that he ultimately you know, didn't really execute to the degree that we hoped. And Kyle Shanahan is someone who is trending more in that direction and who has shown the ability and the willingness to vary that tempo over the course of a game, including in the game that he most recently played in that Super Bowl loss against New England. So let's get then to the third out of the four areas we're going to look at, and that's going to be shotgun versus under center percentages. Of course, with Colin Kaepernick and with Chip Kelly, we've trended towards more of a pistol or a shotgun team. This has been the trend really in the NFL over the course of the last five, six years, where you're seeing fewer and fewer quarterbacks take snaps from under center. And the 49ers now with Kyle Shanahan are probably going to trend the other way. And they are going to have less plays under the or at the shotgun and more plays under center. If you look at Kyle Shanahan's shotgun percentage over the course of the last five years, it peaked with RG3 in 2012 with 65% of the snaps coming out of the shotgun. That was still only third in the NFL, though. Uh, and then with uh, in his second year, he went to fifth at 72%. Again, the entire league trending more towards shotgun and pistol. But once he's got a quarterback that is a bit more under center, he can go back to his preference and he goes back to about anywhere between 40 and 50% of his snaps in in the shotgun, meaning that 60 to 50% of the snaps are under center. And so, again, he's probably going to morph this or adjust it to whatever quarterback we've got. So if we end up with Colin Kaepernick again, he's not going to try and force Colin Kaepernick to stay under center if that's not what he does well. But if given his choice you're going to see more under center plays from Kyle Shanahan. Yeah, I mean, especially compared to Chip, right? Like where we're in shotgun, what, like 97, 98% of the time or something ridiculous like that. Unless we were kneeling, unless we were kneeling or maybe goal line, I don't know that that I ever saw Colin Kaepernick under center. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a rare, like every once in a while, they'd line up under center and uh, do like a play action or or something like that, like... Uh, it was a it was a super rare thing. But yeah, I mean, you're talking like 90, 95 percent plus uh, snaps there in in shotgun or pistol. So obviously it's going to come down a bit from that, um, given what we know about Shanahan and his tendencies in the past. But yeah, I really think it's all going to depend on who they end up with at quarterback. Right. Like one of the things everybody kind of freaked out about um, Matt Schaub getting uh, getting mentioned as a possible name there. You know, I think a Hoyer has been mentioned like some of these uh, not very good quarterbacks at all. And, and I don't know that necessarily they realize that once Kaepernick opts out, which, you know, everybody is expecting, like is, is pretty much a foregone conclusion at this point. He's, I think it's he's already he he hasn't formally announced it, but he can the, for like the, a month. Like, it's not until yeah. early March that he can actually. Do but that, that cat's but out of the bag. It's yeah. I mean, it's going to happen. So once that happens, the 49ers have zero quarterbacks under contract zero so they're going to need several quarterbacks uh this offseason whether that's uh adding a guy or two in free agency whether that's drafting somebody in the first few rounds like however they're going to do it they're going to need at least three guys to get them through camp and then you know maybe you drop one and only carry two in the regular season but they're going to need bodies there so um yeah it's really going to depend on how that group shakes out and and kind of 
who ends up being the top option because again I think he can um really adapt his system and, and a lot of the stuff that they do in the zone run game and play action you can very easily do all that same stuff out of the pistol uh compared with under centers so there's not a huge difference there and I mean we saw Peyton Manning running all that stuff out of the pistol you know in his last couple years there with Denver because he wasn't as mobile and he needed a, the extra few steps. I was going to say, I, I don't know. Running the pistol, I think is the, is the right word there. I, don't, I, don't I mean, I think it shows many. right that it's, that it's a little bit more varied in how you can use it than a lot of people want to think, you know, they associate pistol with the, Oh, you got to have a running quarterback in there. And that's not necessarily, there, there are benefits to the pistol beyond uh, what you can do from a quarterback running standpoint. So yeah, I think it really just depends on the, the skills of the guys that they have. Um, you know, where they feel comfortable with. It's not going to be a big difference from what he does offensively, whether you're under center or in the pistol. I just looked it up, and San Francisco did indeed lead the league in 2016 in percent shotgun snaps. 92.5% of their snaps uh, were in shotgun. Second place was Detroit at 84.1. And, of course, you've got Atlanta at 39.7. They were last in the league. Yep, with, uh, I guess that's not, you, you, they were just at the bottom of the league. Not, I, there's no good or bad, right? So it's not like it's like, oh, it's yeah. top or worse or best or last. It's just this is what they chose to do. It's not as though one is inherently better than the other. Uh, one thing that I think will be interesting is that oftentimes Bill Walsh would say that you, and this is why Bill Walsh never went to the shotgun, because he thought the timing of the quarterback's feet on the drop helped them with the timing on moving through their progressions and their routes. So who knows? Maybe there's something to be said for that and improving a bit of quarterback play from uh, from the quarterback position here in San Francisco. But then finally, let's talk about play action. Play action was really part of the foundation of Atlanta's offense and has been part of the foundation of Kyle Shanahan's offense the, over the course of the last five years. When you look at the percent of play action plays that Kyle Shanahan's offenses have had over the last five years, they've never ranked below seventh over the last five years in terms of play action uh, percentage, meaning the percentage of plays that utilize play action. So in 2012, they were ranked first, 2013 sixth, 2014 second, 2015 seventh. And then, of course, this year with Atlanta, they were a play action machine uh, and basically had one play action pass out of every four plays. Uh, so every every time they got a first down, it's like one of the plays was going to be a, a play action pass. So likely going to see a large degree of increase in play action when Kyle Shanahan takes the reins here in San Francisco. Well, I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that Chip ran a shit ton of play action, too. So I, I, yep. I don't know that. I mean, Kaepernick ended up, I think, um, if I remember right, like some somewhere around fifth or sixth in terms of play action percentage. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I think is going to continue to be a huge part. I mean, you can you can bank on that being a large component of the 49ers offense. I, I mean, in some regards, play action can be uh, somewhat dependent on game situation, right? Like, uh, obviously, yeah, I guess contrary to popular belief, you don't need to have a good run game to do play action, but you do need to have at least the threat of a run, right? If you're down 21 points, well, then those linebackers aren't really giving a shit if you run the ball anymore, and they're not keen on the run game, which is really what makes play action effective, is is they have certain keys that they're looking for. Oh, these guys look like run keys, so I'm going to come towards the line of scrimmage and, and open up that void kind of between the second and third level of defense, right? That's really what you're aiming to do. And if if the game's out of hand, like that no longer becomes effective. So when you're you're not uh when you're in a bad team, bad offense, like you're generally gonna see uh play action numbers that are a little bit lower than they would otherwise. And then 
you know, if you have teams that are uh, doing very well, like the the Falcons were this year, then, you know, maybe you see a little bit more. But it, this is something, again, like you mentioned, that's been very consistent throughout his entire career. I mean, this goes this offense, uh, you know, at its core has been around for what? 20 plus years now going back to, you know, kind of when Shanahan, Mike Shanahan was really doing this in Denver. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a new thing and he's going to continue to make that a large part of the offense for sure. One thing I think is interesting is that of course, run pass option plays are probably lumped into this play action area. So if you've, if you're a quarterback and you, uh, you know, kind of do a a ball fake and and look like you're going to hand it off and then pull the ball out of the belly and throw it, that probably goes down as a play action, which, um, I wonder there's there's probably no way to unless we charted it ourselves to do a true difference in, in terms of play action versus run pass option. Um, but it, I think it would be an interesting little thing to do. And um, I'm sure PFF charts it. It's just they don't make yeah, that stuff available. Don't make it available. Yeah, yeah. Unless they're probably for the, the, the team clients and stuff. Um, one thing that I guess on RPOs that that I am actually like slightly concerned with Um is a lot of the RPOs that they do. So again, you're 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 looking at a team that's under center. Really, most RPOs are designed, you know, with a quarterback and shotgun because it allows him to kind of see the the keys that he's reading as he's doing the run fake. Can't do that under center, right? So quarterback, once he takes the snap, he's got to turn his back to the defense and and look like he's going to hand the ball off to the back and then kind of snap around. So it's really more of a it's it's really all based on pre-snap. And then you can't confirm what you're seeing until you're about ready to throw the ball. I mean, I think it's something that you can maybe get away with, uh, you know, when you have somebody like Matt Ryan. But I, I think it's kind of a riskier play because you can't, again, confirm what you're getting from the coverage. You can't confirm that that key defender's action after the snap. It's really just, okay, I see a look that I like pre-snap and I think it's going to be there. So I'm going to pull this ball and I'm going to throw the slant even though I can't really see what's coming because I got to turn around and fake this ball of the running back. So the, I've seen them run RPOs and by them, I mean Atlanta specifically, I've seen them run RPOs from the shotgun and the RPO I saw and the RPO I saw them run from under center. Matt Ryan never turned to hand the ball off. He took us, he took one step back and threw the slant. Oh, they do. And the, se- I mean, they they have on uh, several occasions because I noticed this too. Um, watching actually Washington's offense recently because they run a very very similar offense. Um, and but both teams, yeah, like he'll take it's quick. Like he takes a couple steps, um, and then maybe once he gets to about like three yards deep into the backfield, he turns and fires a slant really quick on the backside. Um, and it's a little scary. Like every time, like even though you know, okay, like it's Matt Ryan, he probably knows what he's seen, like gonna be fine like it's mildly terrifying like i wouldn't trust i don't think i trust colin kaepernick i certainly wouldn't trust blaine gabbard to do that bullshit like <laughs> um I, yeah i, th- I, I think you wouldn't it's, trust it's blaine little, gabbard to be your uber driver i mean that's fair um it, it's it's a little yeah I, i'll be interested to see if he keeps that with you know a a below average quarterback which they're probably going to have next year so I don't know. Yeah, it was just one thing that's I mean, obviously, yeah, that's not the entire RPO package that they have or those style of uh, of RPOs like they they do different things. Obviously, they they spend uh, time in the shotgun as well, and we'll do them there. And I, but I just think that's kind of the more 
natural environment that you see RPOs from because the quarterback can see everything, right? Everything's the, the run fake is happening in front of him. He can keep an eye on the defense as he's going through that mesh. And I just think you get a, a more clear picture when you do it that way. Uh, definitely a little bit more risk involved, or at least you're, you're more limited, right? Because again, it has to be a pre-snap only thing that makes the determination as to whether you're going to run past, not uh, any sort of post-snap confirmation or read. So what then are your expectations for Cal Shanahan? And obviously we haven't dug super deep into the offense and there's a lot that can change, but just, just generally speaking, what would you think would be a successful kind of opening tenure for year one for Kyle? Um, so I think it's important to keep in mind for year one that like, they're not going to go trot out a top 10 offense. Like, you know, today, especially right after the hire, right? Everybody wanted to throw out the, the Niners uh, media team, put together this big, uh, you know, kind of infographic sort of thing that, that listed accomplishments for Kyle Shanahan and previous stops. And, and everybody wants to point to the top 10 offenses that he's had in each uh, of his spots there. And it's, it's like that. OK, that doesn't happen right away. One. Um, you need players to execute that stuff. Julio Jones, Matt Ryan, uh, you know, those guys aren't coming with him, unfortunately. So I, I think the important thing to keep in mind is, and we saw this a little bit with Chip, right? Like we were both very excited about Chip's offense. And I think that he, they, they made mostly this, the type of strides that we expected in year one, but it still wasn't very good. Right. And I think you're probably going to see the same thing with Kyle coming in here. It's like, they're not going to be great offensively unless they the, the only thing that changes that is if they luck into a quarterback, if they end up taking, uh, you know, a quarterback in the draft and that guy turns into your next, you know, Dak Prescott sort of guy um, and, and they get markedly better quarterback play than they've gotten in the last few years. That's the one thing that turns turns your offense around quickly. Barring that. It's it's going to they're going to probably be bad offensively next year still. So well, you you even look at what he did in Atlanta in Atlanta in 2014. The offense was ranked 10th overall. And then Kyle Shanahan comes on as coordinator in 2015. And that ranking drops down to 23 based on DVOA. And, and so the offense actually got a lot worse before it became ridiculously awesome. And, and so you, you've got to look at, and this is why, you know, if, if the rumored six year, six year deal is true, I hope that at least it means we get at least three to four years of Kyle Shanahan, because I think that it's one of those things where he's going to need time to get his players in. They're going to turn over this. They have to turn over this roster. They have to. I hope that they go after it more like Seattle did, where they were doing like 120 some odd transactions because they were like, just nope, nope, nope. Nope, nope. Okay, you'll do. Nope, 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 nope. You can't hang on to all these players and hope something happens. You just got to cut bait. And now that there's a new GM, he's not going to be tied to some of the draft picks and draft capital that we've sunk into previous uh, previous players like Tank Carradine. He gone. Yeah, um, yeah it just that there's no reason to keep them around. You're not tied to them anymore, and you've got to turn over that roster to get players that can play uh, in into the system and into the scheme. So I don't think you're going to see a top 10 offense year one. I, I don't think that you're going to see, you know, when you think of even the number of wins, right? I, I don't think that you can or should put like, a, oh, I need to see, you know, three wins or four wins or five wins or six wins. I think the way that you should look at it, at least the way that I will be looking at it in terms of success for year one 
is over the course of the year is the team com- is the team doing the things that it fundamentally could not do this year on both sides of the ball on defense can you tackle right because that was not always a sure thing uh, in San Francisco last year uh, are, are they a little better against the run because they were the worst as they possibly could be against the run does the offense does the offense look and feel like it's actually putting things together and like it's actually producing or like it's out of sorts all year. I have a feeling early on it's going to look a little weird um, and it's going to look a little out of sorts. But then over the course of the year, is the quarterback play getting better? How's Carlos Hyde doing in this scheme? Is this damn offensive line that seems like it's going to be plotting all year? Are they putting new people in those positions? Are they actually getting a little slimmer and faster? What happens to Joshua Garnett? I think that's how I'm going to start looking at the team. In terms of win-losses, who knows? We'll see who they draft and we'll see what free agency brings. But initially, I want to see the team make some strides towards the right direction. Uh, and, and if Kyle Shanahan begins to put a stamp on it, then, then I'll think, yeah, it's, it's beginning to, to be successful. Honestly, everything that you mentioned are, are really more year two expectations for me. Like, I, I kind of fully expect, it, at least if they, if they do it right. And, and that's, I think, the thing that... that fans should be kind of focused on is look we want to to build the foundation that we were kind of you know that we thought we had there with Jim Harbaugh in in those early years we want to build a foundation for success in the long term and that means not making decisions that make us a little bit better in 2017 but potentially hurts us for 2018 2019 2020 and beyond right and it's decisions like what to do at quarterback, like, you know, the, the Kirk Cousins, like Kirk Cousins is a fine quarterback. He's a good quarterback, but he's not a good fit for this particular team and where it's at in kind of its its life cycle, I guess, for for lack of a better term. Like they need somebody they, they need to go through the draft and find somebody that's going to be their guy. Um, quarterbacks that are acquired via free agency, via trade rarely pan out you go look at the the history of all of the quarterback trades quarterback free agencies and it's it's a a a low um probability that that you're going to find your guy there you look at starting quarterbacks across the league and especially successful ones those teams got those players by drafting them so you gotta have a little patience if that's not this year if, if if they're not in love with deshaun watson or kaiser or trubisky or whoever you know ends up finding their way up to to a first round grade by some of these guys um then that's fine like they i don't think they need to put a rush on those things so year one for me like i expect it to be kind of a disaster like hopefully they're they're turning the roster over they haven't quite found everything that they need yet like the pieces aren't there things aren't making a lot of sense like but they're they're building this slowly for the long haul so those things where you're starting to see like them building on and, and doing some competent things and doing some baseline things and starting to move forward. Uh, I think for me is more year two. Like I have very, very low expectations for what they're going to do in 2017. And for me, I think it's more about the tinkering in year one. Like it's for me, it's like, okay, figuring out if this offensive line can succeed in this system. And that means moving, sure. maybe moving players around, maybe trying them in different positions, maybe trying different combinations. That, that That's what I was trying to get across. And I was like, is Trent Brown really a good right tackle for this scheme? I don't know. Let's see what happens, right? Let's see, does he get better over the course of the year or does he continue to be a pretty terrible run blocker? 
And if so, then, you know, be okay with benching him or getting rid of him or, or whatever, right? When I think of this offensive system and I think about quarterback play getting better, I don't mean quarterback player going from average to good or from good to great. I'm talking about like a quarterback play that's at least watchable in the system that we will build for however long we're going to have it, right? So for me, and for me, I think tackling is pretty base level for whomever you have in there. Um, because to me, that's that's one of the fundamentals of football, right? Sure. And, and, and so it, it's to me, it's it's is he approaching this and tweaking the things that he needs to figure out in order to begin to take this forward. And that to me does mean that you look for improvement in the offense. And again, improvement being a relative term, right? When you go from potentially one of the worst, what could look like the worst offense in the league to who knows what the, what the improvement is, right? What the jump is, but you just hope that it doesn't do the opposite, which is like potentially regress, right? And say, maybe they, maybe they come out for some audible reason with like, four or five wins and and their blowout wins. We're not talking like the one point wins and then everything and the wheels fall off like that. That would be a little weird to me. I think Um, if for no other reason, then we won four games at at a blowout. But um, (laughs) I mean, but yeah, like that, that's the kind of thing that I would be looking for. And the other thing to keep in mind is the, the, the Niners offense did improve this year, right? Like it was 23rd in DVOA. You know, a lot of people, it it was still again, uh, and, and we're talking about, varying degrees of bad in a lot of ways between what happened in 2015 and 2016. But the, the the Niners were generally better in areas that we expected them to be better. I think the one thing, the one area that they um, didn't really meet our even low expectations was probably from a defensive line standpoint. I think that was an area that we expected to sort of be kind of the main strength of the team. And, and obviously, um, you know, some injuries and, and other problems, guys just not playing as well as uh, they, they probably should be, um, you know, impacted things there to a great degree. And the run defense was a disaster. But, you know, offensively, that was what we kind of thought, right? They went from being legit one of the worst, like, you know, talking in the 30s and DVOA and uh, improved that up to 23rd. So, you know, there, there were signs of improvement, I think. That is, you know, maybe the best that they could hope for next year is is somewhere in that sort of range. Um, but if if all of a sudden the turnover, I mean, you mentioned the offensive line and, and we'll get into, you know, what we think um, the roster looks like and, and how it fits with the scheme probably later in the offseason. But I mean, offensive line is one area that I'm going to be uh, really focused in on this offseason and, and in free agency because. You know, outside zone, we talked about it with Chip, right, running a zone blocking scheme, but he was more inside zone heavy, which I think you can get away with kind of bigger guys that are more a little bit more powerful uh, when you're doing more inside zone because it's more downhill scheme. Um, Kyle runs, you know, a, a variety of different things, but it really is outside zone, wide zone based, which I do think requires some more athleticism. So, yeah, guys like Trent Brown, you know, uh, Garnett, Andrew Tiller, like, I wonder if they have a place in this scheme. Um, you know, I don't know that you can move on from Garnett. It would be very surprising to cut bait with him. You know, if you decide that he's not a fit after one year of being a first round pick, but Hey, like again, John Lynch isn't tied to these guys. So uh, who knows what's going to happen, but that's an area that I, I think offensively, especially like is, is kind of primed for some big turnover. Do you know where we, and, and I, I know, but I'm wondering if you've looked up where we ended up in terms of red zone offense based on DVOA this year. 
Uh, no, top. I know. I know. The last time that I looked at it, it was pretty high. Like I, I want to say, like around seven or eight or so. Um, in kind of that yeah. range. I started the red zone tracker when we were, we got like tenth, I think, in week six or seven. Um, we ended the year second overall. Yeah, I second mean, overall in red zone offense, behind only Tennessee and ahead of my and ahead of Dallas. First in red zone passing DVOA and third in red zone rushing DVOA. We were fourth in goal to go situations. I mean, uh, that's, I mean, but, but again, like that, that to me is just, those are the little things, right? Like, and we talked about those little moments, those little things where they were actually pretty good. And, and, you know, I, I think that this offense is, I think it'll get worse before it gets better. Yeah, but that's but that's the kind of stuff that I think like, OK, we're, it, it's going to be really weird and really awkward the first probably eight, nine weeks of the season. But then especially with some of the core pieces, do those things begin to take hold? Does the system begin to take hold? Can we even see the trappings of a system? I think um, is really what I'm going to be looking at. In yeah, I think one. it's process, right? Like that's what I want to see is, you know, we have a lot of question marks with both Lynch and, and Shanahan. I mean, maybe fewer with Shanahan, but. Um, you know, again, we, we've talked about before in, in previous episodes, first time head coaches and, uh, you know, not necessarily a, a great track record there compared to guys that have had a chance to go somewhere like the 49ers. That's a kind of shitty situation and, um, uh, make, make a lot of mistakes and, and probably fail and then learn from those mistakes and be better in their second stop. Right. Um, we hope that Shanahan's not that guy and that he can kind of get things figured out in the first stop, but. Uh, you know, there are concerns there. And then obviously there are concerns with Lynch. I think um, I, I've kind of uh, backed off the ledge a little bit there. The more I think there's a few things, uh, you know, obviously from conversations that we've had with Dan Hatman. But, um, you know, uh, I, I also read uh, an article. I forgot. I can't remember for the life of me where it was at, but it was with an uh, interview with Scott Pioli. And kind of he talked about um, a lot of his failures and why it, things didn't work out in Kansas City once he left New England. And uh, a lot of the things that he pointed to were things that you would kind of point to right now as being strengths of John Lynch. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that in that position, uh, there, there are probably a variety of ways to do it. And, and maybe the, the skill set of needing to be just this kind of scout and, and an evaluation heavy background um, maybe isn't the best route to go every time because there's a lot more to that job. So. Uh, you know, I have a little bit more hope for him, but again, question marks abound with with this group and and kind of the youth that they have across the board at key positions. So, I really want to see process wise, what are they doing? Like, are they going to mortgage a shit ton of draft picks and stuff to go get Jimmy Garoppolo or Kirk Cousins? Like, okay, that's going to scare me off a little bit that they're really, you know, building this thing the right way for the long term. So, I want to see. Focus on process, not as much on results, because honestly, next year, the results are, are probably not going to be very good. Well, I think that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Uh, we're going to be taking a little bit of a hiatus between episodes, mostly just because my ass is going on a little bit of a vacation uh, for the wife's 30th birthday. So I will be in Mexico beginning uh, Wednesday. Uh, and so we're not going to record for a couple of weeks, but doesn't mean we're not working. Uh, we are putting together. We've already got our content map for the next several weeks, and we've got to do I'm some studying. Why, Op- that's right. Shannon we're gonna, offense when we get back. 
That's right. It's going to be all about the Shanahan offense when we get back. Of course, we're going to cover the draft this year. And this year, usually we stay away from some of the hardcore college scouting stuff. But this year, since we're going through the Scouting Academy, we're actually going to look at some uh, some prospects and we're going to do our own film work and evaluation uh, and offer our thoughts there. So definitely going to be here throughout the offseason, despite the fact that, uh, you know, there's the, not in terms of news, there's not a lot. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to be learning stuff and getting better. Uh, so if you can follow me on the Twitters, if you want to see my tweets and all the stuff that's going out on there, you can always do so at Better Rivals. David, where can they find you? As it might be new, no more underscore. The underscore is gonna, it's this is going to be changing soon. I haven't actually done it, uh, oh. but it, so it's still at David excited. Newman with an underscore. But we're banishing that goddamn underscore forever. Uh, Screw that and, underscore. And, and getting rid of it, and we're going to change it to something a little bit different here. So my uh, other question, and you. My other question for you, and you've got about uh, a minute to do so, mm-hmm. is to come up with a call to action. Because we forgot one last week, uh, and I, I would have used uh, A.T. Allahan's, uh, which is what you oh, chose man, on, yeah. on the Twitters, which written down is a lot better than it is uh, spoken. Because yes. when, you, when you say it out loud, uh, you know, A.T. Aliens, like the, the album, but A.T. Allahan's, yeah, it doesn't it, really it work. It really uh, works loud. written. But yeah, yes, not so much trying to explain yeah. it out loud. Um, yeah. um, man, what do we got? Uh, let's like weird thing. We got CoDC yeah. hashtag. Um, man, not really many funny things. We we kind of like dug into it a little bit in this episode. We should so. we should have prepped a little better, I guess. Um, all right. Well, let's. Um, <laughs> he did. Let's. I mean, it's hashtag. He didn't leave us. Or <laughs> we actually have a coach, which is uh, you know mildly surprising. Yeah, I like you didn't leave us. So if you're here at this part of the episode, then you really, really must like to get to the end of things. <laughs> uh, your ethic is strong. Uh, but tweet at us, uh, hashtag he didn't leave us. Uh, and so thanks for tuning in. And as always, go Niners. I'm Karis Fisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Carreyou, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there.